let's begin with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful Easter Sunday morning and that we can gather with our beloved uh, Christian brothers and sisters to open up the scriptures and to understand and examine and proclaim our mutual salvation. We pray that you'd give us wisdom and forthright confidence to confess the truth of Christ in the gospel. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Okay, here is the passage we are on. I'm on slide 30 of 36. And if we get done with this, I have another one ready to go from Hebrews on the need to learn. So it says in 1 John 4, 13, and I'll be reading through verse 15, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Now here in one section comprised of three verses, we have the essence of what I've been saying for several weeks on this matter of discerning of spirits. How do we know that somebody claiming to speak for God really is? How do we know that someone claiming to speak for God under the anointing of the Spirit really is? And we've already been told back several weeks ago when I was in this passage in 1 John 5 that we should test the spirits. And I've been laying out for you week by week a sure, clear, and obvious test of spirits that are found throughout the New Testament. And that is that the Holy Spirit causes those who believe to confess Christ. That's the test. It's literal. It's objective. It's applicable. And it's suitable for the church. There's no reason whatsoever for any one of us to go to some conference where they claim to speak for God and not be able to discern whether they really do or really don't. We can do so, and we must do so. If someone claims to have the anointing of the Spirit, then they must confess Christ. That's it. Why is that so hard? Why is it not practiced? Well, let's look at this passage in light of all the others that I've gone through in the last month or so, you know, when it's been my turn to teach Sunday school. By this we know. So what is the point that we know? That's a theme in First John, that we know we have eternal life, that we know he abides in us, that we know he, we abide in him that we know the truth of the gospel. It's objective. If we think that we can travel into the world of the spirits 
and work around in that world and come to any safe and certain knowledge based on being in the spirit world, we shall be deceived. Because an article that I wrote over 10 years ago has been linked all over the world, I get emails more than one a week, even though the article goes way back, from people who have problems with spirits. They have manifestations in their houses, manifestations in their kids, and they're looking for an exorcist. They're willing to fly me out to their place to deal with the spirits, and they don't read the article. The article is about what I used to do in the 70s and why I found out it was ineffective and and not biblical and went to the gospel. They don't read that far. They think I'm a guru who can deal with spirits. And they want to call, they want to Skype, they want me to fly out. And I say, no, here's how you deal with spirits. Ignore them. Just stay away. If you start stirring up these spirits and demons, they love the attention. You'll be doing it the rest of your life. The manifestations will not go away. Ignore, ignore, ignore. And when it comes to the truth, confess, confess, confess. And don't talk to spirits, talk to God. And do like Paul did in 2 Corinthians 12. He, when he had a messenger from Satan tormenting him, went to God and asked that he remove it. The thorn in the flesh, which is called a messenger or angel of Satan, God allowed it to stay. So I would say, if you're one of the persons who has trouble with these manifestations, that you tell God you're willing to serve him on his terms, whether there are demons around or not. It says in 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We can't go to some physical location and escape from Satan. There's no guru or exorcist that can manipulate the spirits to any ultimate good. But we have Christ And we can be seated with him in the heavenlies far above all principalities and powers. Lately, I've been linking my article on the armor of God being the gospel, sending that to people who ask. They're desperate. Some of these people lose their entire life savings to charlatans who claim to be deliverance ministers. They'll charge thousands of dollars for their time. And the whole thing is a scam. Are the demons real? Yes. But stirring them up by addressing them only makes things worse. Now, we, by this we know that we abide in him. So how do we know that we abide in Christ and he in us? Because he's given us of his spirit. And so the Holy Spirit comes to us through the gospel and through the word. And those who believe are those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. As I've shown you in previous lectures, Luther claimed the Holy Spirit comes to us through the word. Last week I quoted John MacArthur saying the same thing. The Holy Spirit comes to us through the word. And it stands to reason that since the 
Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. When we teach the Bible with authority, clarity, according to the author's meaning, and make implications and applications that necessarily and logically derive from that meaning, we are speaking in a way that the Holy Spirit will work in the lives of Christians and in a gospel fellowship. Eric and I believe that with all our hearts. What we practice here reflects that belief, and nothing will dissuade either of us. It's easier now because people here have already gotten beat up here and there, and they now long for the gospel. I don't feel good that you got beat up, but I feel good you long for the gospel. I remember 30 years ago when I started to see this ever so dimly and ever so slowly coming around to it, and I was teaching, the criticism that I got from people who did not like my teaching was that it was too academic, it was too intellectual, that it was not practical, and that if I would come up with something down to earth and practical, they'd want to listen to that. Now, that, of course, all assumes that God doesn't work through his ordained means. In other words, if we provide means of grace, nothing will happen. But if we give a how-to seminar, that would be like engineering 101, how to do this, how to do this, how to do that, the secret of everything. Oh, there, now we get it. No, it doesn't do any good. Lives do not change through how-to seminars. They change when the Holy Spirit works powerfully in us and through us through the gospel and the confession of Christ and the means of grace. And, well, people want something. Now, make a decision. You're going to follow these five steps because they're wed to the idea of decisions. How about believe? Believe the word of God. Believe the truth. And the work of the Spirit may seem imperceptible, but it's real. It's continual. And it'll change our lives. And I believe that. I will not be dissuaded. I'll either do nothing or I'm going to provide means of grace. There's no in between. I don't know better than somebody else how to. I'm really quite pathetic. I can barely stay healthy enough to stay on the earth so I can teach you. But I do believe that God will use his ordained means according to his promises that we believe. Now, by this, we know that we abide in him. Isn't that what we need to know? Do we abide in Christ? Is he in us? Is he pleased with us? The thing that troubles anybody honest is their own conscience, their own doubts. We talked about this a little bit. I had some stuff from Luther. See if I can remember it. Remember the guy in Mark who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And... Luther was concerned that people who struggle about whether they have the faith that they need, that struggle whether they're forgiven, whether whether maybe they don't really believe, maybe they're just hypocrites when they 
believe that they're Christians, but they're not sure. He wanted to calm the conscience that was troubled by doubts and fears and provide for the flock the assurance of the forgiveness of sins. Because for centuries, the church that they'd known before was providing guilt, 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 guilt. And if that's not enough, more guilt. Do more. Try harder. Do these things. Well, you missed something. Remember last week, uh, Sean said somebody he knows is a devout Catholic was totally troubled because they had missed a holy day of obligation to go to a swim meet for a grandson. I'd say, where did this holy day of obligation come from? Not from the scripture. Guilt, guilt, do more, try harder, fail, guilt, guilt. Where is the forgiveness of sins? It's found in the gospel. Is your faith troubled? Do you wonder whether you have too many doubts that God could ever use you? This isn't about self-esteem. That's worthless. It's about believing the promises of God. And the promise of God is that he will forgive our sins on account of Christ's holy righteousness. We abide in him because, and we know this, he has given us of his spirit. Well, we can all say, yeah, I have the Holy Spirit. I'm a great man of God, and I'm anointed, and come and hear the anointed man of God. Might as well say, come and hear the Antichrist. First John 2 says, we all have an anointing, and we all know, and we need no man to teach us. Not that we don't have teaching, but there's no secret knowledge to be taught by some secret anointed one. This is true of all Christians. And how do we know we have the Holy Spirit? Because we confess Christ. That's how we know. We confess Christ. And we do so wherever we go by God's grace because that's just what Christians do. Can it be that simple? Yes. Let's read on. And we have beheld and bear witness. We, they're probably the apostles, Remember 1 John 1, they've seen, heard, touched the objectivity, not just a spirit Jesus, an avatar or whatever, but the true Christ who was incarnate and came physically on the earth and could be seen, heard, and touched. And we bear, beheld, bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Then it says, whoever confesses, we are back to our same category. So the apostles, who were the eyewitnesses and were commissioned by Christ to go forth and teach the truth, they bear witness that the Father sent the Son to be Savior of the world. So this witness is objective, not subjective. And this Christ as Savior is clear. Um, Eric, being how you're close to the mic, could you read John three seventeen through nineteen? John three seventeen. I assume you know John three sixteen. Well, let's go to the next verse. How about John three seventeen? I bet you that's a good one too. 
<laughs> okay, go ahead. Indeed it is. John three seventeen, And how far do you want to go, Bob? 19? Yes. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Okay, so we have several important truths. God sent the Son into the world, not to bring judgment, to bring, but to bring salvation. But we have a problem, and that is, as I said in 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So darkness prevails, unbelief prevails, spiritual bondage prevails. And in the midst of this situation comes the Son, sent by God, anointed by the Spirit, who descended upon him bodily. And there's a call to faith. He who believes in him is not judged. We're called to believe in the Son of God who came into the world. Today we celebrate his resurrection. It was a bodily resurrection, not a mystical one. And he appeared to witnesses. Witnesses are people that you could have testify in court. Why would you have a witness testify in court? Because they have pertinent knowledge and information that's objective that pertains to the case. Paul said that Christ, the resurrected Christ, appeared to 500 witnesses. So we either believe in him. It's not asking us to believe in fairy tales. If you come to church, people aren't going to sprinkle pixie dust on you and send you off into la-la land. Okay, The Lord forbid that I would ever ask anybody to believe something that's not objectively true. This is the real world in time and space, in real history that God created with real evidence that what we're saying is true. And how do we know we believe? God sent his spirit into our hearts and we confess. It's so true. I was converted on July 18th, 1971. A few days later, they took me to a youth retreat and asked me to speak to several hundred junior high kids. I had no clue about anything other than the gospel was true. And so I just told my story about the gospel and how I'd been converted. And the Lord used that. And so we confess immediately because we just do. I hadn't been trained in rhetoric or theology or anything else, but I knew the truth of the gospel. Now, what about this idea of savior of the world, cosmos, or cosmo in the genitive of the world? Now, in light of 1 John five nineteen, let me read that to you. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Here comes the son to be savior of the world. So that includes salvation from Satan and the powers of darkness. Now, here's the question. 
When it says that God loved his, the world and sent his son, when it says here he's sent to be savior of the world, in what sense is this passage talking about the world? Does it mean that the son came to save the social system? That's what some people will say. That's what I heard in the liberal church that I grew up in. We don't believe anybody actually goes to hell, they would say. But that Christian salvation means making the world a better place to live in. And in the 1960s, in a little bitty rural area of Iowa where I was from, liberal ideas had penetrated and the way they thought the world would be saved was through communism and socialism. We're going to vote for people who want to promote that particular idea. My dad, did I tell you the story about my dad rebuking him at the state convention? He said, we don't want to hear this in our little farm area. Everything we don't believe, everything we died to fight against in the war. But such goes liberalism. Saving the world means making the whole world some sort of a Christianized something or another. It's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the spiritual situation addressed in 1 John 5, 19. We're either of God or of the world. If we're of the world, we're under the powers of darkness. If we're under the powers of darkness, rearranging the deck chairs isn't going to fix it. We need to be delivered and transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And what I longed to hear that I didn't hear was the truth of the gospel calling me up short as a rebellious young man that I was. I'm not blaming them. My rebellion was my own fault and I deserved to go right to hell. But God in his mercy saved me. And I went back to the pastor that had taught me liberalism that didn't believe in the resurrection of Christ. I told him my story of being converted to Christianity. And he said, well, when I was a young man, I kind of tried that too, but I found out it doesn't work. Having your sins forgiven and being converted doesn't work? <laughs> and your social gospel does work? And the good people of the rural Iowa go to church and they're faithful and they just live with whatever pastor the bishop sends along for the next four years. That Jesus is Savior is true for those who confess. We have been given a spirit and this is shown by our confession. Some who quote John 3.16 approvingly, you see it at football games, you know, here, here's a sign, kick the field goal right here. John 3.16. They really don't believe John 3.16. I saw a debate between Walter Martin and a notorious liberal bishop, Bishop Spung. And this was one of the last events that Dr. Martin was at before he passed away. But he, he said to this bishop, he said, I noticed when we were checking the mics, you quoted John 3.16. He said, I'm glad you like John 3.16. Are you willing to say that people are in danger of perishing? Because John 3.16 says that they'll be saved from perishing. That they may not perish, but have eternal life. 
Are they in danger of eternal damnation? He wouldn't say that. He didn't believe John 3.16. He only believed the parts of it that sounded nice and warm and fuzzy. The truth is we confess. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides him and he in God. So here again, we have the same truth found in all these other passages, and it's about confession. I think I'll leave some of these other quotes to use sometime. I don't know if we're going to do this on the radio. Uh, let me go ahead and quote this. I have a commentary from Howard I. I. Marshall. He says, if our attempt to work out the connection of thought is correct, then it would seem that John is listing a further characteristic of the true Christian by which he may be differentiated from those who rest their claims simply on charismatic experiences. The test for the reality of spiritual gifts is whether those who possess them also hold to the apostolic faith. So John goes on to state that he and his readers have seen and now bear witness that the Father sent his Son to be Savior of the world. So then he goes on and talks about that. You know, there are a lot of TV preachers who claim to be anointed men of God. But you can listen to them for hour on end and they do not confess the gospel. So they're not really anointed. So that's what Marshall was saying here. I think... Oh, ready to go to the next slide? Yes. Matthew 7, 22 and 23. Now, we want to not give credence to the idea that uttering the words is all you need. In other words, it's not that somebody who isn't a true Christian goes to confess Christ or to say the words, Jesus is Lord, Somehow the old clamp comes in their mouth won't open. It won't come out. Because we know for a fact that false cultists say Jesus is Lord, even though they redefine everything about it. It's not the mere utterance of words, but it's the heartfelt, spirit-inspired confession of the truth of Christ and his gospel. It says in Matthew seven twenty-two and 23, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. On that day indicates eschatological or end time day of judgment. People believe they're Christian, they're not. They're staking their claim on charismatic experiences or miracles or what have you. Exorcism and miracles are not definitive. Let me say that again. Exorcism and miracles are not definitive. Prophecy, we've defined it, and I believe biblically and properly here, as bringing forth valid implications and applications of Scripture. And prophecy in that regard can be judged. If somebody, Eric or I or anybody else, says, here's the meaning, that's the first level of judgment. Did we get the meaning right? Did the Holy Spirit-inspired author mean what we say he meant in the passage under consideration? Second, 
when we go to implications and applications, we're saying, therefore, God said it means this through the scripture. Therefore, here are necessary and binding implications and applications. At that level, prophecy can be judged. And we can say what your claim is doesn't follow from the text you're trying to use as proof. That's what it means to judge prophecy. Judging prophecy doesn't mean somebody gets up and says, thus saith the Lord, and they go on about something. Direct inspiration. Luther called those who did that enthusiasts. And if Luther called you an enthusiast, that's very bad. Okay, the enthusiasts would go speaking for God beyond Scripture. Well, how do you judge it? God told me to say this, and then how do you judge it? Well, I don't think he did. So you have the subjective judging the subjective, and everybody's deceived and confused. But if the meaning of Scripture can be ascertained, and the implications and applications that are claimed to follow from it can be seen to either be logically or not logically connected to the text, we can judge prophecy. My opinion, that definition of prophecy, if it were held to, and I think it's biblical, Luther definitely used it, would solve a lot of problems. But not everybody holds to that. Yes, bring the mic to Mike. Okay, we'll give this a shot then. Matthew seven twenty two twenty three. I would say it's a great proof text to prove uh, um, what the scripture, the, the one John verse that we're in here, where um, it says those who profess the, 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 that Christ is God, here we see that same thing. And so, you know, John was writing in a time when um, we had docetism or Gnosticism coming, but they think possibly Gnosticism, which was proclaiming a different Christ. Yep. And we have a new form of that now. Uh, one example would be uh, Mormonism, yep. where they have a different Christ, and yep. they're proclaiming, Lord, Lord. You know, they're, they're going to, they would, people who die in their Mormonism will be saying this, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? Do we not cast out many demons? Uh, but they have a different Christ. They have a Christ that, That's true. like the, like the uh, was being taught here in Ephesus when John was that John was writing against the the Mormon Christ. He's just a human being. The Spirit of God came into him at baptism, right? Yeah. Entered him at baptism and left before he was crucified, and so all the Mormons it and, fails and, and, the test. It fails the test. So yeah. that would be a good application of this. That's uh, a good application. Yeah, they may say Christ, but they have a different definition. Right. Well, again, you, uh, depends what you want. You have to think about this. When I first started doing this 30 years ago, they were saying it's not practical. Why are you always worried about definitions? They didn't even have scripture wrangling about words. If we want to know what the text meant, we were wrangling about words, and that was bad. Some guy can get up and tell a story going to the Toronto Blessing and quacking like a duck. Well, the Holy Spirit. But if somebody's explaining Scripture, eh, it's not practical. <laughs> Unbelievable. Fighting tooth and nail for 30 years for the right to preach the gospel and to be believed on in regard to the gospel and the word of God itself, not personal experiences. And those who claim that what God has provided is in 
practical are guilty of rebellion and unbelief. They're saying God doesn't keep his promises and he won't do what he said he would do. Brian. Uh, Just to add on to what Mike was saying, anything besides biblical Christianity would fall into that same category. Yeah, and likewise, Christianity that no longer confesses or has no doctrine of Christ that would include the forgiveness of sins. I told you many times about our trip. By the way, I heard from my friend Chris Roseboro, who's moving to North Dakota. He called me on the way. I didn't question his sanity for moving to North Dakota, but uh, he's moved from Indiana. But uh, great to hear him. We went together to preach Christ in some high-level places where he isn't preached. And I, uh, I love my dear Lutheran friend, Chris. What about, I can still hear him say both at the emergent meeting and at the purpose-driven one. We ended up a couple of years apart at two of these summits. What about the forgiveness of sins? Well, uh, they didn't say so, but the reaction was basically, we don't have anything for that. Why doesn't the emergent have it? Because they're universalists. There is no transcendent lawgiver who we've offended that would be someone to seek for forgiveness. Yes. I was just curious. Hold on. Wait for Brian. I don't know if I need that. Well, we need it. You don't. Anyway, uh, did you hear, this is a pretty hot button, but did you hear uh, Obama's addressing the prayer breakfast? A couple of days ago, it made my skin crawl. It made me really scared me. Well, because he knows the right things to say, and if if that's the first time you ever heard him, you wouldn't really know. Well, I don't have the stomach to hear it, so I didn't turn it. <laughs> it really bothers me. So you're saying that, um, in spite of the multiple followers that the woman who went viral in Costa Rica because the dead Pope on her wall spoke to her and told her to rise up and get healed, and now she has tons of followers? That's false. Yeah, I, I'm saying that's false. Yes, I am. The dead Pope. But see, that's the problem. These apparitions, we want to go anywhere but to the true resurrected Christ. This is Easter. We're talking about the resurrected Christ, who we really believe We confess him. If we are wrong, our eternal souls shall be damned. Unless the universalists are true, and then we can enjoy eternity with Hitler. Yes. It's difficult to make money if you stick just to the Bible. Well, I so far haven't made money, and I do try to stick to the Bible, so... (laughs) But I... (laughs) That's okay. <laughs> but, it, you know, it's true. There, If you follow the money trail, false religions are very lucrative. Yes, okay. Oh, I just wanted to say along that line, my mom, who's a definite scholar of the Bible her whole life, um, she said that, you know, we, we don't really like to believe in hell. We'd rather believe in universal salvation. But we have to go by what the Word of God says. 
Mm-hmm. You know, if someday we found out, well, you know, <laughs> this was not right if and everyone's safe. Yeah, if we're wrong. We have to go by the word of God. Yeah. That's all yeah, we have. And I'll admit, you know, I'm not a relativist, but the, the relativist would say, well, the reason you want to believe the resurrection and literal hell and all that is because you were disappointed in the theological liberalism that you were taught as a youth. At the time when I was 12, 13, 14 years old, and I was full of all these questions, I was given a bunch of hogwash. And, and I grew up on a farm, so I, you know, I know what hogs are, okay? <laughs> and uh, I just ended up checking out. Now, can what I believe here about the resurrection of, the, of Christ be accounted to on psychological grounds that I'm making up for my childhood experience with theological liberalism? Well, I say it can, it can explain some of the passion I have against it. Because by the time I was at Iowa State University, I wouldn't go to any church or believe any religion. But that was my own fault. There was plenty of evidence for God, and it was science that brought me back to God when I saw the evidence. The question is whether these eyewitnesses are motivated by knowing the truth or whether they just made it all up in order to start a religion. There's no good reason to be religious if you're not going to follow the truth. Matthew 7, 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, notice here, all of this goes together. All this fits together. The apostles claim to be eyewitnesses of Christ. They heard him, they saw him, they touched him. He was a real Christ, not a docetist or a docetic Christ who only seemed to have a body. The words of Christ, who cannot lie because he's God, fully human and fully God, Christ cannot lie, are binding and authoritative words from God. This doesn't mean that only the red letters in the Bible are authoritative, but it means that those plus everything the apostles taught because they were commissioned by Christ are truth given by Christ and they shall be the basis of the final judgment. And if we're going to build our house on a rock, not sand, so it doesn't wash away with a flood, we need to know the truth of what God says. Yes. I was just going to say earlier to what you were saying, Bob, that um, liberalism wasn't relevant to you. That's why you checked out, because liberalism is not relevant to our struggle as human beings against God. And yeah. The rebellion that we know is there. So yeah. In my you mind, it, you found it completely irrelevant to you. I found it irrelevant because if all we had to offer was try to make a world a better place to live, I could do that just as well as a chemical engineer. I didn't really need to be a Christian. Because I knew people that were Christians held down responsible jobs and made their contribution to society, and I believed I could do the same. Peter. Bob, again from Catholic tradition, you know, the constant cry that faith without works is dead, but isn't Matthew 7 saying there's an order here that one proceeds from the other? Yeah, he who hears, and it means listens, 
gives his, my beloved son, listen to him, and acts upon it and building on the rock. Now, if we act upon it, what we first thing we do is believe the gospel. See, the problem is if we don't have clear categories about who speaks for God, we can work, 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 guilt, 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 work, 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 guilt, 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 work, work, work. There's no end. It's a treadmill. Never do we arrive at the place where we can rest in God, my sins are forgiven. Do you believe that? Jesus' words are definitive and serve as a basis for the final judgment. It says in John twelve forty eight, you might want to jot this one down. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. So much for this postmodern relativism. We can't know, we can't know, we can't know. Well, you better start knowing because it's going to be the basis for judgment. I used this verse in my debate with Doug Padgett. Um, yes. You know, Bob, that I, Bob is right. Write down John twelve forty eight. That was a seminal verse that really meant a lot to me when I was in seminary dealing with the postmoderns. You shared it at an apologetic meeting that you did at Northwestern College. I remember that. And um, think about the significance of what Bob is saying. You have this postmodern emergent movement saying you can't know God, and therefore you can't know the words of Scripture. And yet Jesus says that the very words he gave will be your judge. And so now you really are caught. Are you going to believe the postmodern teachers? Are you going to believe Jesus? Well, I'm going with the yeah. guy who was raised from the dead. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's, let's look at that for a moment. The words that he spoke will be our judge in the last day. Now, what I learned when I was studying postmodern ideas is that the reader determines the meaning, not the author. So if you have a thousand readers, you have a thousand possible meanings. And when you object to the relativism of all that, they say, well, it's not a reader in isolation, it's a group of readers. So our group has its own reading and this is what it means to us. Well, you still have, in a fancy way of saying it, the reader determining the meaning. So if this meaning is determined by me, how can it be my judge on the last day? Because it came from me to start with. All right? It's not an objective basis for anything. Now, we would say, and I believe rightly so, that the author determines the meaning. And if the author can be traced back to Christ and his apostles and they spoke for God, then we have a basis for the final judgment. And so if we don't want to be on the wrong side of that, we need to believe the gospel. Come over to Mike Kaufman here. Okay. Uh, the, the problem you have with the postmoderns is the fact that they really don't believe that the Bible is the errant word of Christ. So I, I don't even know why they use it. I don't even know why they call themselves Christians. I mean, because okay. if you're going to say we can have a conversation, if you and I agree that this, this Bible is the inerrant, infallible word of God, you in the original manuscripts, right? Uh, but they don't believe that. So, Well, they don't you, believe you can know it, believe it, understand it, uh, make it authoritative. If you read Brian McLaren's book, he, um, which I did, and write about it. Yeah. They deny at the level of verbal expression. They, de they, they deny at the level of social interaction. 
They do every possible way of denying, they deny. And then meaning is imported, imported by the group. And if you he, want to hear where it all comes from, listen to Eric's lecture on that Wednesday night where he talked about Marxism. There's believed to be a process of spiritual evolution at work. This, as Tony Jones said, is a tractor beam, thinking of Star, Star Trek, a tractor beam of redemption. So we are being pulled into God, and it doesn't matter if we understand or don't understand. It's going to happen anyhow. We can just meditate. And that's the bottom line is to meditate. Now we're saying to confess. They're saying meditate, yes. Well, Resurrection Sunday, the resurrection proves that everything that was said in this book is true. And they're universalists. Why do they even celebrate Easter? You didn't know, need to go to the cross to die. I mean, it's just such silliness. You can't have we, a rational argument with them. We used to have a Bible study that met down in Lakeville in the 80s. And this family that I fellowship with went to be with relatives for Easter. And they went to church. And the pastor was saying, what Easter means is that the cycles of nature, every spring the grass turns green. That's your resurrection. Well, uh, he must have said that before this spring because it really hasn't turned green. Now, I believe it will. I have blind faith. It will turn green, but it hasn't so far. But that's not the point. That's just imminence. That's just feel good. It's not based on Christ. Yes. That's what um, Eric Metaxas points out in his book on Bonhoeffer, you know, the state church and the liberal church. He's like, why do you even bother being a pastor, really? You know, and Eric Metaxas was pointing that out when he spoke at the prayer breakfast. Okay. You know, God hates dead religion. You know, why Why even bother just hanging up? Why have a church? Well, that's what I decided. Literally, that's what this, I thought there was more teeth to chemical engineering. So that's why I went into that. The, at least religious, uh, but then when I got to Iowa State, they were trying to throw science into the same postmodern heap. And this was in 70, 1970. Already, I heard postmodern ideas. By the way, postmodern was first publicly articulated by Martin Heidegger, a Nazi philosopher from before World War II. So Nazism was postmodern. Peter's been very patient. Got to get through this PowerPoint. I was going to say, Bob. I'm under the gun. It's a good time to remind people about your uh, neo-paganism lecture on (laughs) Wednesday, Wednesday, because you'll cover a lot of this. Wednesday night, I'll be lecturing on neo-paganism, the religion of the world we live in. Yes. That's that's this Wednesday, right, Bob? Yes. Okay. Uh, Back to what Mike said again, too, and I'm not trying to beat up on the Catholics because I grew, grew up in the faith tradition, but again, the conflict between, you know, they claim that the Bible's the inerrant work of God, and yet to have the idea, the sin of presumption, where you've always got to work, 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 it's in conflict with the inerrant work of God. Yeah. I know, and then you add on to the creeds and the councils and all that. Yeah, they just, they have no assurance. You never come back to that, no. Well, let's go to my text here so I can finish the PowerPoint. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So our faith 
has objective content. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So here again is a confession of Christ. Revelation 3 and verse 5. We're talking about overcomers. What does it mean to be an overcomer? Somebody mentioned Bonhoeffer. In um, Nazi Germany, there was the church that went along with Nazism and Hitler, and then there were the confessing Christians. They wouldn't give up their confession. They ultimately met the same doom as the Jews who wouldn't give up their transcendent God who had spoken in Scripture. Because Nazism was a neo-pagan nature religion based on the supposed superiority of a certain race of people, consciously call himself postmodern. Revelation 3.5, he who overcomes will be clothed with white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So the Holy Spirit causes us to confess Christ. This is the ground, ultimately, of judgment. The one who confesses name is in the book, and that one shall find justification now and then ultimately at the judgment. They will be confessed by God. What a great blessing. One more slide, and we'll be done with this. Overcomers are born of God, and they do confess the truth. Matthew 10, 32, and 33. Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. So again, you have a heaven and a hell. You have confession or denial. You have a final judgment. And you have objective grounds for what that will be. We deceive ourselves. We need objective criterion. When I was at Iowa State as an unbeliever, and Christians would come around witnessing, which they did, I would always fall back on, I'm a good person. You know, I don't go around stealing people's slide rolls. Mm-hmm. That was a target. People, you had to have a slide roll because this was before calculators were available, the, we, the electronic ones. And they cost over 20 bucks for a post-versalog. That was, that's what you needed. And you did all of your engineering calculations on this slide roll. Now, students would steal those. That's very bad. Very wicked to steal a man's slide roll. And I would think, well, I don't do that. I'm the good guy. I'm the good guy that thinks you shouldn't do that. And so I had a a bigger vestige of superficial goodness, quote, unquote, which really wasn't. It was filthy rags. And I thought that's all you need. There'll just be a God grading on the curve. But when Christians would witness to me, I'd resist them. I didn't want to hear about it until finally God had the final say. I was converted. Then I became one of those pesty Christians on campus. 
So if the emergence are right, there's no heaven and hell. We are in a universe characterized by evolution, both biological and spiritual. Everything is evolving into God. God is in everything. We just need to work the process, and we either contribute to it by trying to do good, or we detract from it by doing things like ordinary human enterprise. I'll talk about that Wednesday night. To the emergence, to the postmoderns, humans are the problem. That's why they have no problem. They don't even blink the eye. Let me give you a little preview for Wednesday night. You've got a little delta smelt that some elitist says needs water. And we have to shut off the water to the humans for the smelt. And the same ones that go around crusading for abortion. We can kill the humans, but we got to save what everything else. That's paganism on full-blown display. Why? Preview for Wednesday night. The Bible says that God created humans, male and female, in his image. That there's a ontological difference, means order of being, between all humans, whether they're Christian or not, whether they're whatever religion or irreligion they may have, they're still humans created in God's image that we are to treat with respect. That's the biblical worldview. The pagan worldview makes no distinction and actually favors the non-human every chance there is. And it's really hard for us to see. One more comment and we'll be out of time. Bob, I'd like to consider the words of Solomon in, in Proverbs 26, 4 through 5. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he not be wise in his own eyes. So when we deal with the postmodernists or the neo-paganism, we have to understand what you're teaching us is where they're coming from, but we also have to understand that we have God's word. Yep. And lay it out before them yep. and let the Holy Spirit, Spirit do it. That's exactly my strategy. We don't laugh at them. We don't belittle them. No. We don't mock them. We, had we, a, we give we them had the a word of God. civil debate. When I debated Doug Paget, it was civil. He's a nice guy. I just laid out my worldview. It's like we're in two different universes. And we don't need to be ashamed of what we do believe. Actually, we went, uh, Chris and I went out to their conference. They didn't know who we were unless we said so. The leaders did. I got, well, I got to say, I, I've made some enemies in that one word group. But, uh, Make any friends? well, we were friendly with everybody. Uh, actually, Chris Roseboro came under heavy criticism by other Christians for being civil to Doug Padgett on his radio show. There are a lot of Christians that think you just ought to be mean and nasty, and if you're not, you're not a good Christian. I don't believe that. Neither does Chris. Because we were once in darkness. We were once blind. We were once deceived. And God gave us mercy. We're not doing anybody any favor by being mean and nasty in the name of Christ. 
But the ideas themselves are hard enough to deal with. I just let go with the ideas. Agree. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that by your Holy Spirit we can confess Jesus our Lord. Thank you that you allow us to look into things that are so exciting and so profound. Give us boldness to continue on in this. In Jesus' holy name, amen. You are dismissed.